Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's graduation time already as high school and college seniors look forward to their futures. Coming up, we'll look into higher education trends in Connecticut, including completion rates, and how a consortium of schools in the greater Hartford area have been working together to transform the capital city into a college town. First, a follow-up from our last show about the legacy of Chef V. O'Neill 20 years later. The Hartford Current reported recently that not all magnet schools were following admission rules. Specifically, some students were enrolled outside of the computerized lottery system that's run by the State Department of Education. If some schools are skirting the lottery system, what message does that send to thousands of Hartford and suburban parents who follow the rules when applying, only to be waitlisted? You can join the conversation 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us by phone now is Matthew Kaufman, investigative reporter at the Hartford Current. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Lucy. You were last on with your colleague Vanessa De La Torre talking about uh, the Current's series on Chef V. O'Neill. Uh, but now uh, the attention's turned into this story that you've done about how some schools have been cherry-picking their students, so to speak. Tell us uh, what prompted you to look into it and what did you find? Uh, sure. So w- when we were uh, reporting, when Vanessa and I were reporting uh, the series on looking at the Sheffield O'Neill desegregation case uh, 20 years on, um, we ha- had heard some issues about enrollment practices at uh, Capital Preparatory Magnet uh, School, one of the most popular of the magnets, the most popular within the city of Hartford. And, and we have heard for years some of the concerns uh, about their enrollment and some rumors sort of about their enrollment. We're aware um, also in the past about some kind of statistical anomalies um, with their enrollment, uh, not only through uh, athletics, which has been sort of a a source of contention for a lot of uh, competing coaches, that how a a lottery school has so many um, top athletes, but some other uh, sort of statistical anomalies with their uh, enrollment. So um, these sort of issues came up again during our reporting on the chef case. And uh, once we completed that, we thought, let's let's take a, a deeper dive into that issue. I mean, there's a, a big divide between, you know, what, quote unquote, everyone knows um, and what you can uh, establish, you know, significantly with interviews and on the record with names and supported by uh, documents and uh, court records uh, and the like and, you know, survive legal review and the rest. Um, but we got to a point where uh, we were able to say that at least uh, 10 top athletes at the school, including athletes and some of their state championship teams, uh, were not admitted through the regular admission process and uh, appear to have been hand-selected for their athletic prowess. And the state then followed up. Um, well, they've been doing this for quite some time, but uh, uh, the next day the state released an audit um, showing a, a very substantial number, 116 students had been admitted to capital prep outside the lottery process. One year, uh, 44% um, of all students uh, appear to have been handpicked by administrators instead of 
admitted through uh, the blind lottery, and they found um, smaller numbers at, uh, at a number of other schools as well. So you're saying that the um, state has been auditing the system in the past? This is not the first time. Um, well, the state, ha- no, this was the first time that the state did a comprehensive audit. They've been working on it for quite some time um, and uh, had reported uh, this week their, or last week, their results, but um, their work to try to figure out who came in through the lottery and who did not um, actually began uh, a couple of years ago, and they've been working on this kind of behind the scenes um, for a very long time. Uh, first looked into one year. Um, at Capital Prep, uh, became concerned about uh, just how much they found. Again, that was in one year, 44% um, of all students. This was for 13-14 school year. Uh, then decided, let's continue our, our auditing here and looked for the following year uh, for 14-15, looked at Capital Prep and three other schools, um, and again, found a significant number at Capital Prep, smaller number at a few other schools. Uh, then the State Department of Education um, also uh, kind of quietly, not publicly, uh, decided to look at um, capital prep for yet the following year, 1516, uh, found um, a number of students, 15 students that year, uh, who did not go through the lottery process. And then finally decided, let's look at all of the Hartford region magnets uh, for this current year um, and found 13 schools. Uh, at which at least one student was taken outside the lottery uh, process. Um, we are attempting to determine the reasons for that. Uh, in some cases where there may have been you know, just one or two, um, there could be a reason that, while technically not permissible, um, is nevertheless you know, perhaps to one person or another uh, defensible, if it might be sort of a, a truly extraordinary case that might um, call for you know, sort of a humanitarian exception. There is no such exception in the law, but nevertheless, uh, with some schools that may have one or two, uh, once we find out the reasons, it may well be that you know, the average uh, state resident may go, well, I could, um, I could accept something like that. Um, a, a little tougher when nearly half of your students um, are coming in bypassing the thousands trying to get in through the lottery. Now, in your reporting, you found that Capital Prep has a, an operations plan that's a little different than the other 40 magnet schools. Uh, what does that plan allow them to do? What does it say that the board of the school um, right. can so The operations plan says that the governing committee in special circumstances can authorize the principal uh, to place a student um, and we have asked for and have not yet received any records that might uh, indicate that the uh, governing committee had made that authority in, in any particular case. The school had pointed uh, to that plan um, as a justification for its enrollment outside the lottery. Now, that was before the state came out and said, well, we're not talking one or two students here. Uh, we're talking almost half the enrollees. Um, and the school we then followed up uh, with the current principal to try to find out, is it still the school's position uh, that these were all students accepted under these special circumstances? Not delineated, but at least identified as special circumstances um, that this governing committee uh, would authorize. So we've gone back to the school to say, is it still the school's position, um, even with 44% of the students one year coming in, that these were all 
permissible special circumstances. Uh, we have not gotten a response to that question. I mentioned there are 40 magnet schools uh, in the, the system. Does the State Department of Ed, do they review these operation plans? Like, where is their oversight in all this? Uh, well, the auditors were quite critical, uh, quite critical of the state's oversight, um, saying that it had failed to really detect, uh, to monitor, and to halt uh, these sorts of practices. The auditors looked at 18 operating plans for magnet schools. None of the other had um, anything saying, you know, under, that under any circumstances, uh, there is some process for admitting a student, uh, you know, for allowing the principal to place a student. Um, this operations plan was originally signed back in 2005 by an acting um, uh, commissioner of education. We reached out to that individual to find out what, uh, you know, his intentions were. Um, we did not get a response to that inquiry. Um, but what the state has responded is to say, well, actually, we have an ongoing contract between the State Department of Education um, or the the State Board of Education, and Hartford Public Schools for the management of magnet schools. And that contract uh, requires that Hartford Public Schools use only the state-run blind lottery um, as a method for enrolling students and does not permit any other method of enrollment. So it's the state's position that whatever these supposed special circumstances that might permit uh, a principal to select an individual student outside the lottery is superseded by the contract that says uh, that the Hartford host magnet schools must use the lottery and only the lottery. This is where we live. We're speaking with Matt Kaufman, investigative reporter at the Hartford Current. The Current uh, first reported on a story that uh, some students at Capital Prep, one of the most popular magnet schools in the Hartford area, uh, were being admitted to the school without using the uh, random lottery system that's put in place uh, to make the, the system fair. Uh, Matt, um, we mentioned earlier, again, that um, this is a popular magnet school founded by Steve Perry, who um, is known in education circles. Uh, when he was... Uh, principal, uh, was this, did this problem, um, was that the, around when he was also principal of the school? Uh, so, yeah. So, Steve Perry, nationally prominent education reporter, uh, has written half a dozen books, um, is, uh, I think, may still be on um, a, a multi-city, I think he described it as a 79-city uh, education truth tour, founded Capital Prep in Hartford, uh, founded Capital Prep Harbor Charter School in Bridgeport, and a charter school um, in Harlem, uh, very well known nationally. Um, and I indeed, yes, that year in 2013-14, when the state found that 44% of the students came in outside the lottery, uh, Steve Perry was the principal. Um, and around 13-14 and years before that and years after, uh, Dr. Perry had taken to uh, Twitter and other social media and one of the books that he's, that he's written um, to emphatically deny that the school handpicked uh, any students and, and um, really to kind of mock and make accusations against those who suggested otherwise. So that was one of the uh, intriguing uh, sort of revelations, not simply that the school was selecting so many students outside the lottery, but that that uh, really contradicted with what Dr. Perry had said uh, over and over and over, that his athletes, that his, uh, uh, you know, academic students were all simply randomly selected uh, through the lottery. So we've reached out to him uh, and his publicist in, in multiple ways um, to see if he will uh, respond in, in any way to exactly what was going on 
uh, when he was principal and so many students were coming in uh, being cherry-picked, um, and he has uh, not responded to, to any of those efforts. In studio with us is reporter uh, Jackie Rabe-Thomas uh, for ctmirror.org. Jackie, you've also reported on the state auditor's report looking at this problem within Hartford Magnet Schools, uh, some schools cherry-picking, um, as Matt said, charter, um, sorry, capital prep uh, being um, having the biggest problem with as many students that were uh, allowed to enroll without being part of the lottery system. What is the Department of Ed Education Commissioner saying about this? So the, the state auditors of public accounts, sort of the watchdogs of, of state government to make sure things are running as intended and as state law is um, supposed to be working, found several things were lacking. So the state has really tried to say, okay, you said that we're not double checking who wins the lottery are actually the people who are enrolled. So they're promising to do that every year now. It remains a question of why they weren't doing that to begin with. Um, the state auditor said that there's no policy, coherent policies in place. They're sort of ad hoc all over the place to to say what enrollment policies are, who gets preference in the lottery, things like sibling preference, that sort of thing, is all sort of all over the place. You need one document where they're all in, in, in place, the State Department of Ed, saying, okay, we're going to be more um, transparent about everything. And then there's also the um, the State Department of Ed actually did approve the operating plan of the um, of, of capital prep. So the question is, why one bureau of the department was able to approve it, and the, another bureau who actually knew that that's not appropriate, it's not, it's actually not allowed, why they weren't communicating with each other. So the State Department of Ed has really sort of tried to get out in front of this, but I think there is sort of this lack of confidence of what happened. Why weren't you double-checking that people who were winning the lottery um, were at, or enrolling in schools weren't actually the ones enrolling in the schools. You say lack of confidence. I think the the lottery system for the upcoming school year just concluded, at least uh, for the people that um, enrolled on time. What are parents and, and other you know, school officials in the system saying now that this story is out? So the first round of lottery took place. Um, parents began being informed over the weekend whether or not they want a seat. Um, it... it was a small number that the state found. There was 33 students for the current school year that we're in that were admitted outside of the lottery. Um, through talking with some state officials and with Hartford Public Schools officials, um, they've said that there are some humanitarian reasons. They're, they haven't released publicly the very specific cases, but sort of more generally, here are the reasons why that would happen. Um, still waiting on some more specifics about that. Um, so while it was just 33 of the roughly 20,000 students who apply in the lottery, I think even even just having that shadow of doubt, uh, that casts over it, is, is kind of alarming to some parents. I'll turn back to Matt Kaufman with the Hartford Current. Let's talk about the consequences for capital prep and these other schools that were found uh, to be um, not using the lottery system in, in, the, in the appropriate way. Will they lose state funding? And as far as capital prep is concerned, a lot of these students, uh, good athletes, helped uh, win some championships. What happens to those titles? Right. So the, the state uh, provides funding uh, for students enrolled at magnet schools, and it's about 13,000 for uh, suburban students at Hartford Host Magnet Schools and, and uh, students throughout sort of the Chef region. And the state um, has already docked uh, capital prep a little under $200,000 for 15 students that it found improperly enrolled in 2015-16 and says that it will uh, similarly dock about that 13000 a piece 
uh, for students found improperly rolled uh, during 2016-17, and that's that 33 figure. Um, there were actually uh, eight additional uh, Hartford resident students improperly enrolled in Hartford host magnets, um, but the state is not uh, taking away any money from Hartford schools for uh, those students. So there is a financial cost. It will run into the hundreds of thousands um, just of, of those students that are known from the last two school years. We don't yet know if there will be any penalty uh, for the years that the auditor looked at three and four years ago. Um, in terms of athletics, uh, the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference uh, has uh, authority over uh, you know, disciplining schools that are found to engage in improper uh, activities. They met last week um, decided not to launch an immediate investigation um, uh, to open the possibility that they may, may do so in the future, but did say no matter what they do that they will not uh, strip the state championships. I think the girls' basketball team at Capital Prep has four in recent years. Uh, football has one, uh, that they would not uh, strip those uh, championship titles. And on social media, that was a, a great relief uh, to students at Capital Prep, some of those hardworking athletes that were in those championship games, um, and uh, somewhat more critical response from some school leaders and uh, coaches at competing schools um, that feel that they were you know, potentially cheated out of an opportunity uh, playing against the team with sort of hand-selected players. Before we head to break, Matt, uh, we mentioned that you were on um, over a month ago talking about this in-depth series that you and Vanessa did for the Hartford Current on the Chef System 20 years on. What is the Chef Coalition saying with news that um, some of these magnet schools aren't following the rules? Uh, so they did put out a statement expressing uh, concern that this had happened and, and um, some concern over what this might mean for the integrity of the lottery system. Uh, as Jackie said, Percentage-wise, outside capital prep, um, it is a small percentage, but uh, there is, you know, great interest in the lottery, and parents sort of, you know, wait anxiously for that phone call, and there are parents who try year after year to get in, uh, get in for their, their children and cannot. So even a small number uh, does threaten kind of the reputation and the integrity. So the, the Chef Coalition uh, did put out a statement you know, expressing concern about this, sort of happy that there was an audit, happy that the state uh, intends to continue this audit and, and uh, is hopeful that this will, you know, maintain um, the integrity in, of the system and faith in the system. Matthew Kaufman, investigative reporter at the Hartford Current. Thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Now, Jackie Rabe Thomas is in studio with us. She's a reporter for ctmirror.org. She's going to stick around as we explore higher education trends in Connecticut and efforts to help college students remain in school. Did you struggle your first year in college? What programs helped you stay on the path to graduation? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. State officials are celebrating record high graduation rates in Connecticut. In 2016, 87.4% of students graduated. Does this mean these students are sufficiently prepared for college and beyond? 
how should proficiency be measured? To help answer that question, uh, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas is in studio with us, reporter for ctmir.org. And joining us is David Johnston, director of the Center for Higher Education Retention Excellence. It's a subsidiary of the Hartford Consortium for Higher Education. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I wanted to go back to Jacqueline. Um, there was an announcement a couple weeks ago by Governor Malloy that highlighted that record uh, graduation rate in 2016 uh, for Connecticut. But that's only part of the picture when we look at well, what does that actually mean? Right. So graduation rates since 2011 have increased from 83% to 87.4%. At that same time, the National Student Clearinghouse, they measure what percentage of students are actually showing up for college. And that number has not changed in Connecticut. It's roughly about 70% each year um, showing up since 2011. So more students aren't necessarily headed for college. A higher rate of students aren't headed for college. At Buckley High School, for example, it was 40% in 2011. Um, it was 28% last year. Bridgeport's Bassett High School, 33% back in 2011. It was 34% last year. So the trends of students who are actually showing up for college aren't improving. And so this comes in sort of the wake of colleges are also having problems dealing with um, a aging population in Connecticut. So the, the rate of students from high school who are actually showing up um, the number of students who are graduating high school and who are sort of in the pipeline to head off to college are also significantly declining. We have one of the the, the fastest declining pipelines in, in the country. Why? What are some of the factors that um, are preventing these high school grads from taking that next step and enrolling, whether it's community college or a four-year institution? So it's kind of hard to, to prove causation, whether it's tuition rates. Tuition rates have really gone up, up, up as state funding has not kept pace with escalating costs at the colleges, um, or whether or it's people need to work to, to provide for their families and they don't have time to, to, go, to go off to college. So there's, there's those two factors. And whether or not people are showing up prepared, um, there was a Superior Court judge who recently sort of really was very critical of the state's education system. His words were, um, we we're sending off kids to, to college. We're graduating kids without the, the education that we promised them. Um, throughout the trial, the superintendent at the time of Bridgeport said that it's possible to be graduating illiterates. Um, the superintendent of Wyndham said the same exact thing or testified to the same exact thing. So um, I, th I think it's a K through 12 system um, in, in the opinion of some, as well as whether or not um, students are also um, being tested appropriately when they come into college. Um, I've talked to some students who, you know, had to take the placement exams and didn't realize there was so much weight behind it of where they would be placed. So, so there's that issue as well. We should mention uh, when the governor had that press conference to uh, to highlight the record high graduation rates, he also stressed that school funding, the system needs to be changed in Connecticut to be sending more of those state dollars to districts that are in need. Are they called alliance districts? Can you talk about that? So alliance districts are the 30 lowest performing districts. And then there's the, a, a subset of that are the opportunity districts, with, which are the 10 lowest performing districts. And those 10 lowest performing districts collectively enroll like something like 40 percent of the state's students. Um, and so school funding is a big issue in Connecticut. Um, currently, about two-thirds of state funding goes to those alliance districts. Um, the governor has called for a much more heavy weight towards the, the 30 lowest performing districts. Um, I don't know how you get that through a legislature that's controlled by suburban representatives. And so 
um, there's that tension going on over at the state capitol right now. I'll turn to David Johnson again, director of the Center for Higher Education Retention Excellence. Your reaction when you hear the news that um, there's a record number of, of high school graduates, but what does that mean to you when you hear it? Well, we can get into dueling statistics, um, and I looked up uh, what the Board of Regents had to say about this, and and our statistics, they're tracked pretty closely to what Jackie's talking about, and tracked pretty closely with what's happening around the country. Um, the state says that um, 73% of public high school graduates in Connecticut enroll in higher education, but only 47% graduate within six years, and that's kind of the standard measure these days. Of people. Six years Six to years, finish not, undergrad. Yeah. Four years, it's 32%, according to the state. And if you look in different subpopulations, um, uh, kids from economically disadvantaged backgrounds graduate at about 20% versus about 54% for non-economically disadvantaged. And, and that's a placeholder for um, students of color and other, it isn't just students of color, there are plenty of kids from small high schools and small school systems that are economically disadvantaged as well. So they have a hard time. Um, Jackie talked about some of the problems uh, coming into college. If you look at Hartford, for example, about 70% of their graduates are accepted somewhere, but only about 50% matriculate. And part of the reason is, is what Jackie was talking about. But there are a whole lot of uh, so-called non-cognitive or non-academic reasons that people don't enroll and, and suffer what we call the summer melt um, that has to do with the, the fear of enrolling. Sometimes it's something that looks pretty simple to most of us, like their housing deposit, and not having a supportive network to really help them. Um, there, and there are some programs around that are trying to do that, and one in Hartford uh, Career Beginnings that the Hartford Consortium does as mentors that work with students coming out of high school, find the right choice, get accepted, and then they stick with them as they go into college. And we call that seamless counseling or seamless support. And that's a critical piece which looks like something new, but for middle-class students, it's what they take for granted that their families provide for them. Uh, joining the conversation now is actually a student at Central Connecticut State University. Uh, this school is part of that Hartford, Con Hartford Consortium we'll hear about later. Uh, his name is Joshua Rosaria. Welcome to the show, Josh. Uh, thanks for having me. So tell us about um, what year are you, and was it always a goal of yours to attend college? Uh, right now I am a sophomore at CCSU, and my, I am intending to finish my major, which is journalism. Mm -hmm. And was that transition easy for you from high school to CCSU? Uh, when I transitioned from, from high school to college, it was a pretty scary, daunting experience. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what resources were available on campus. And at times, I felt like dropping out. I understand you went to Bulkley High School in Hartford? Yep. So what programs at that high school could have helped you um, with that transition? If there was a program, I think, that was available at the time that allowed students to live on campus for a short while, like, say, during the summer, and then you could have a taste or an experience of what campus life is like, uh, I think that would have helped me out greatly, and not just me, but other students as well. And uh, I also think <clears throat> their uh, counselors at the time should have been t teaching students how loans work and whatnot. Right. 
Now, you said that um, when you when you got to CCSU, at times you felt like dropping out. But what kept you there? Uh, what kept me there was that um, when I went back to my old high school, I, I talked to one of my old teachers, uh, Mr. Taylor, and I told him, Sir, I feel like dropping out. I don't feel like I'm financially prepared for this. I don't feel like I'm mentally prepared to take on college. And he asked, what's your major? And I said, journalism. I, and he said, I might know someone who might be able to get in touch with you about the field. And his name is Ken Ashworth. So by going back to my old teacher, he introduced me to Ken Ashworth from Achieve Hartford. And he helped me out a great deal. He he introduced me to Carlos Solar, a person working at CCSU at the registrar's office, and he helped me understand a bit more about financial aid. And he said, he, uh, Mr. Taylor, going back to Mr. Taylor, he also taught me that college is like an investment. You only get out what you put in. So by putting in the hard work, you, w- you should be able to get a good degree and uh, succeed. This is where we live. We're talking about higher education trends. On the phone with us is a CCSU student, Joshua Rosario. Um, I'll, I'll turn back to uh, to David Johnson, director of the Center for Higher Education Retention Excellence. So Joshua knew what to do. He he took the initiative to speak with someone at his old high school and, and said, I need help. But what about all those students who don't know where to turn? And how is your group helping them? What Josh did, and, and Josh, uh, it's good to hear you. He, Josh was part of a panel that we did out at Central uh, a year and a half ago and did, did a great job. And he's a good example of somebody who had the initiative to find the resources. Not every student has his gumption to go and do that. So we need people on campus, and even before that, in, in high school, high school counselors, organizations uh, like in Career Beginnings who can point to resources and say, you can do this. We talk about instilling a um, a fancy term growth mindset in students that says you can do this. And uh, we're actually going to do a conference about that and how you can teach that. But it's putting a mindset in somebody's head that they can do this. And Josh went and found resources. He found a mentor. um, And I know Ken, he does a great job. Carlos out at Central, another guy who can inspire that, uh, that growth mindset. So we have to point students toward those resources. We have to teach them that there's nothing to be ashamed about. And sometimes people, especially guys, are reluctant to seek that help. They don't want to be viewed as wimps by needing help. And uh, we need to show them that the resources are there for them. That's what they're paying for to go to school and that there are programs to help them. And we've now built some support systems in. Uh, I don't know that we want to get into the weeds on state legislation, but there's now a bill which mandates uh, certain levels of support, embedded support, and some other Mm -hmm. kinds of things so that students who are challenged are not mired in uh, remedial education courses, even though they may have remedial needs. Find creative ways to address that, to have them work in a credit-bearing context and not Uh, use up their financial aid, uh, paying for courses that don't earn them any credit, and usually depress them as a result. And uh, the the track record is not good for students who go into those courses traditionally. And Connecticut and other states is doing a much better job of that, both at the public level and actually in several several of the private schools. I know that uh, Walt Harrison is coming in. UHA has a great program. St. Joe's has a great program. So there are a bunch of programs that provide that level of support 
that build in the kind of resources that uh, that Josh is talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, we couldn't have scripted this better for what Josh had to say about the resources that are needed. You mentioned, I think what you're referencing is Public Act 1240. I'll turn back to Jackie Rabe Thomas, again, a reporter for the CT, for ctmirror.org. I know some, you cover lots of beats, including education. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about remedial programs at colleges. And, and David alluded to the fact that they, they aren't always effective. So back in 2012, um, the Higher Education Committee was really looking at, well, how many students are showing up for college in need of remedial courses? So paying for college-level courses but not getting any credit. So there was about 40,000 students each year just in the public institutions for, who were leaving high school, headed for college, and paying for college courses, but they were they were essentially high school-level classes, things that they needed to take before they could even start on their college career. And there's a lot of research out there that shows the longer it takes to get to the finish line for college, life gets in the way. It, it, it deters you from ever getting to the finish line. Um, speaking as someone who had a kid mid, <laughs> mid-graduate school, it does get in the way. Um, so it is possible to <clears throat> embed those supports into the courses through counseling services, through tutor, extra tutorings, through you know breakout remedial supports while the student is still on track to graduate. So that's been the state's approach. Back in back in 2012, they changed how how it's working. So they sort of have this boot camp to. Th- there's three different approaches. Um, there's this boot, this so-called boot camp to to get students up to up to pace who are just a little bit you know behind and just need sort of a refresher on algebra. It's been four years since you took algebra. Maybe you just need need that again, you know. But then for students who are really far behind, um, there's a little bit added wraparound support. So that was back in 2012. Um, there was some tension be- the way that was rolled out because of state funding and, and making sure that you had the ab- ability to provide those extra tutoring, those extra seminars, the, the smaller classes so that teachers are able to help out. Um, but then there is the sort of what is best practice do we do we instill and move and push forward with this? David, did you want to add something? Well, when this bill was passed and actually when it was discussed and I, I ended up testifying at the original hearing that the Senator Beth By, who, who was the main driver of this, a lot of academic people showed up and pushed back and said these students are going to fail. And she responded, they're already failing. They're not making it out of these courses. It's exactly what Jackie was talking about. So they needed to try something different. And as a result, there has, in fact, been a lot of innovation. Um, Every one of our uh, community colleges and state universities, as well as uh, many other schools, now have these programs that include the bridging that we were talking about the summer before, um, and then once on campus, providing special support, and then the embedded support which is supposedly for students who are at a certain level according to their test scores, although there's some fudging around that. For example, uh, my organization just did its its 15th conference on embedded support out at Eastern, um, where I happen to teach first-year introduction, so I get a, a window, a close-up view of some of these students. Um, but they have a program called the PLUS program. For example, um, if you take English 100, the standard entry-level credit course, you get three credits. If you take 100P, you get four credits, and the P means plus, and you get two extra labs a week, basically doing the remedial support. They just don't call it that. Mm -hmm. They basically say, this is just to help you be a stronger student. So that is clearly the state of the art. I mean, we attracted 40 campuses, including 18 from out of state, to this conference. 
who clearly wanted to set up these kinds of programs. It's not the only piece we have to do, but it's a real important piece in growing both in Connecticut and nationally. We're going to take a call in just under a minute, but I just wanted to ask you, it makes sense to have these um, these measures in place to help these students when they're enrolled in college if they're if they're having trouble. But should there should more be happening when they're a junior senior in high school? Like what programs are available um, in 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 high school to help them be more prepared so they're not going to need that extra lift freshman year? So Connecticut actually was one of a handful of states who won some federal money from the U.S. Department of Education to do dual enrollment programs so that students in, you know, high impoverished communities are enrolling and and taking a course or two in the local community colleges. So I think it was like something like 3,000 students are participating in those programs in dual programs so that they're getting a taste of that higher level material, Um, things like just having access to advanced placement courses for for students, challenging students, sort of showing them the possibility of, you know, there's higher level courses out there um, can also sort of be the eye-opening experience for some students that they need. Uh, this is where we live. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Jonathan's calling from West Hartford. Jonathan, you're on the show. Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Go ahead um, with your question. I am actually going to be graduating from the University of Hartford in just a couple of weeks. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Um, and first of all, I'd just like to say um, to Josh, if he's still listening, that um, I was in your exact shoes when I was a freshman. So, man, kudos to you for for being able to pull together. But I actually dropped out before um, actually coming back to college. Um, and I was just sort of wondering, like, what can we do to sort of like, I guess, reform the financial situation, you know, and, you know, the other problems involved with like getting ready for college? Because I mean, when I, because it was a huge burden for me um, to get going to college, especially as far as money goes. Um, and I was just told when they present you with your financial aid package, you know, just, just sign on the dotted line. Um, and you'll get your money. And now that I've done my exit counseling, I realize, you know, oh, I've taken out over $100,000 to finance this, and I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I'm going to have a job in two weeks, so... Well, I know it's something we've tackled on the show before, but that's a good question, Jonathan. I'll have David Johnson take it. What can be done to help uh, students who, um, you know, maybe it's not the they need the remedial help, it's just trying to afford college? Well, this is probably the toughest uh, challenge that we face. I mean, the other things we've been talking about are also difficult challenges and life circumstances and disadvantage and all of that sort of thing. But paying for college, especially at private schools, I know that Walt Harrison is coming in. And uh, sorry, Walt, but you might want to put that question to him because the private schools have a, a a special burden. They're fine institutions, but the cost makes it difficult for people to get all the financial aid they need. And they're trying to be creative. Uh, Schools that have endowments have a little more capacity to provide more financial aid. Um, But somehow we have to stop students like uh, Jonathan from graduating. $100,000, you know, is going to put a damper on his ability just to contribute to the economy, to buy a home, to have a family and those sorts of things. At the public level, the resources are pretty much there, especially for economically disadvantaged students through the Pell Grant and and other kinds of things and just a relatively 
lower cost. But the private schools have a big challenge. They're all talking about it nationally. There are some proposals uh, that were coming out of Washington. I suspect maybe they're not at the moment um, that we need to look at to find more creative ways to help people. We need to put some limits on debt. I know that's a proposal. And actually, I know that President Trump actually talked about that of having a limit, and I was startled and relieved <laughs> to hear that, um, and let's hope something comes of that because we just can't have people like Jonathan or Joshua graduating with that kind of debt level. Mm-hmm. David Johnson, director of the Center for Higher Education Retention Excellence, a, subsidi- a subsidiary, rather, of the Hartford Consortium for Higher Ed. We'll tweet out information on that conference that you referenced earlier. We appreciate your time today, David. Well, thank you so much. Also, Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, reporter for ctmirror.org. Always a pleasure to hear from you, too. Thanks. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, more than a dozen college and universities are in the greater Hartford region. But chances are, when you think of the capital city, you're not thinking about it as a college town. We'll hear how a consortium is working to change that. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been focusing on higher education trends in Connecticut. Have you ever thought about how many colleges and universities actually exist in the greater Hartford region? Eleven of these institutions belong to a consortium, and one of its main goals is to make the capital city into a college destination. Joining us now to talk about that is Walter Harrison. He's president of the University of Hartford, also a board member of the Hartford Consortium for Higher Education. Walter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit more about this consortium for many of our listeners who may not know about it. Well, the Hartford Consortium for Higher Education started in 1972 when three private institutions, St. Joseph, Trinity College, and the University of Hartford came together with the idea that they could share courses. So this is called cross-registration. So if you go to one of those schools, you could go to take classes in another one of those schools without additional cost. And for many, many years, it existed just doing that. And then in around 2000, we decided to expand and get as many of the institutions in this area as possible into the program, including the two larger public institutions in the area, uh, Central Connecticut State University and the University of Connecticut, and then uh, Capital Community College, Manchester Community College, Goodwin College, uh, the Hartford Seminary, and et cetera, et cetera. So now, as you said, you don't think of Hartford as a higher education uh, center, but among all those colleges, uh, we enroll about 40,000 students, and they're here in this city almost every day. So how do you get more people to think about Hartford as this region for, for higher education and the, the benefits of having all these students uh, learning in this region? I think it's an image problem. We have been so long focused on a financial services and insurance industry in this town and then uh, possibly in UTC um, that people don't realize that together these colleges and universities are a major economic driver in the community. And we do things for the community that really help grow it. Lots of people uh, wring their hands and say we can't keep students in Connecticut. Well, all of our colleges have partnerships with in, uh, large and small industries in this area to allow our students to go work here. So at the University of Hartford, for example, about 40% of our students come from Connecticut, but 
40% of our students stay in Connecticut after they graduate to work. So it's not the same 40%. Some people come here and then decide to go elsewhere for a job, but other people come from all over the country and the world and then end up having jobs in, in, in the greater Hartford area. And I think uh, that's true of all of these colleges mm-hmm. and universities. Now, earlier we were talking about retention rates, um, getting uh, these students to graduate on time. The average now is six years. If you mentioned that all these institutions have partnerships with employers, can that help with keeping kids on track to graduating and then getting that job so it's not so difficult to pay back the student loans, as Jonathan from West Hartford mentioned? Yes, I think uh, that is entirely possible. There are a lot of, you've you've (laughs) talked about a wide range of problems here, but let me just focus on this question of getting people focused on a career and then getting them started in some real way in that career is really important. So last night, I was up till midnight serving omelets to students for our midnight breakfast. Finals start today, and we give them some to eat before the finals. And I happened to get into the line who was waiting for omelets from me. It turned out to be a lot of communication majors who wanted to go to work in television and radio. They had all done internships. Some were doing internships now. And then the older ones had moved from internships into actual jobs, sometimes part-time, sometimes full-time. So the notion is, I think all of our institutions are focused on this. If you can get somebody thinking not only about what am I going to major in college, but what am I going to do next, it helps motivate them to get through. And our our time to graduation is nothing like six years. It's probably five at, at the most, mm-hmm. maybe less. We heard from a, a student who's about to graduate from the University of Hartford, concerned now about that financial aid package coming due. Um, talking about financial literacy, should there be more of a focus on that when students, as they're enrolling, they understand, well, you know, you're able to get this education. There's going to be some bills come due. How can I, you effectively do well, and get that job to help pay that student loan. Sure. So the three big problems you talked about in the last segment, (laughs) one is going to be how do you uh, finance higher education on a national scale? That's a huge problem. That would take an hour just by itself, and you'd only scratch the surface. But given the system we have now, the young man Josh from Central Connecticut put his finger on it, I think, which is to get some training in high school about what it means to take loans. And then finally, you have to manage your loans, and your financial aid office should help you. I'm sorry Jonathan didn't get better help. Our average student graduates with about $50,000 in loan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said he had 100 which I don't quite understand how he managed to do that. But usually hits, um, the, it usually hits uh, the um, middle-class student the hardest. Mm-hmm. Lower-class students get grants, Pell Grants and others. Um, middle-class students have more trouble and turn to debt more frequently. Mm. And what about um, these this consortium reaching out to, um, like you said, there's lots of students in Connecticut that are staying at these institutions. Tell us about some of the programs you have that you're helping students from Hartford, say, get into University of Hartford. Well, I'll tell you three real quick. Now, the two that get most attention are our two magnet schools. We have two magnet schools on campus, University of Hartford Magnet School and the University High School of Science and Engineering. Your first segment was on capital prep. I don't believe it. I believe all of, both of our schools strictly follow the lottery. We get great kids. We get over 1,000 applicants for 47 places every year. Um, it's very hard to get in, but we choose them by lottery. That sometimes drives us a little crazy because the brilliant physics student doesn't get into the school, but we live by that, and we educate these kids. So we're taking Hartford kids. They go to, let's say, University High School, 
They graduate. A hundred percent of our graduates go to college. Mm-hmm. Some two year, some four year. They go all over the country. They go right here. We get a, somewhere between six and twelve every year. They go to college here, and then we help them get jobs in this area. So frequently, these students from Hartford stay in Hartford after their time. And I'm just talking about the University of Hartford. The same thing, I'm sure, is true of St. Joseph and Trinity and the University of Connecticut and Mm -hmm. so forth. We started the segment talking about this idea of making Hartford a a college town. Uh, You said that there's an image problem. Uh, If you've lived in Connecticut for some time, that's that's not new news. How do we confront it? How do we move past it? Well, we're trying to do some high-profile dis- uh, high, uh, things. So, mm-hmm. for example, we had a night at the Athenaeum this spring. Next fall, we're going to have a night on Pratt Street where we're going to invite students to come down there. But I just want to tell you something that's not the consortium. This just happens. 11 o'clock on Thursday night, go down to the bars on the east side of Union Station and see how crowded they are with college kids. They show up there. There are thousands of them. Um, they show up there because they want to be there. Our challenge is how do we get them to come to Hartford for some reason other than beer? Mm. <laughs> I think we'll have to leave it there. I do want to mention, Walter Harrison, you've been president of the University of Hartford for some time. You'll be retiring soon. What are some takeaways? Uh, what do you tell the new members of the consortium, new leaders, of how to elevate Hartford to this next level? First of all, Hartford's my home. I came here. I wasn't from Hartford. I came here when I was 18 years old to go to Trinity College. And I'm one of those people who left and then came back and I've had 19 years at the University of Hartford. So what I tell them is, we're a great place. We, we need to raise our own confidence in our own community and the role that higher education can play in it. And we'll celebrate that on May 31st, the 45th anniversary of the Hartford Consortium of Higher Education. That's right. Their 45th anniversary breakfast celebration to be held at Goodwin Hotel, May 31st at 7.30 a.m. WNPR's Kion Wolf will host that event. We'll put the information out on our Twitter, at Where We Live. Walter Harrison, thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Today's show is produced by Lydia Brown. Kion Wolf's our technical producer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.